Hello, welcome to Second World Problems, a world-building podcast. I am Morgan, I like books, and as always, I am joined by Finn, who I assume also, I mean, I don't need to assume, you also like books. I like a lot of books. Yeah. Many books. But yeah. I also like TV's show, TV, movies, and games as we well. We like content. We do. We like we, media. We, yeah, we just we just like things. I said books though because this episode. This is, is a based book. on a book. We're doing another book. Um, today we are doing Mask of Shadows, and I suppose a little bit of the sequel, um, Ruin of Stars. Uh, Mask of Shadows is by Lindsay Miller. It is a YA novel or novel series. There's only young two. Young adult for those. Young that's what it stands for. adult. Because it's for young adults, by young adults, starring young adults. Well, actually, not necessarily. <laughs> we'll get a bit into it a bit more. Um, for this episode, we're not going to be announcing who we are until the end because Morgan is not particularly familiar with this world and I couldn't decide on whether I wanted to be someone in this world. I'm going to be paying very close attention and I'm going to pick someone who I'm like, they're cool. Yeah. Unless they're all kind of lame yeah. and I'll be like, I don't want to be a so peasant. No. I'm going to ask him at the end who he wants to be, if he wants to be anyone. But the world we're dealing with this episode is, uh, well, I don't know if there's like a full world name. Um, the I suppose the country that this is set in is called Igna. I'm sorry, but the prince pronunciations for this are weird it's the typical like fantasy names that don't don't seem to make a lot of sense why it's just like why do fantasy names never feel like real world names well sometimes they do but usually that means they're taken from a real world language that isn't english and that's yeah. going to be like, just as difficult even like for fake me. places like for what's going to mind is like sokovia yeah from, uh, yeah marvel and stuff is like Sounds like a real place. Yes, <laughs> yeah, same. Um, but yeah, sounds like a place that could actually exist. Yeah. But then fantasy authors are like, no, we get rid of the IA. That apparently that makes stuff sound. They just add like a lot of vowels and yep. stuff, and that's a word. Just stick some G's in there yeah. and some PHs. Yeah. Um, so Welcome the world to is... Galvana. There you go. I just made one up. <laughs> so yeah, the world is Igna. Um, so as we said, the st- the series is a young adult duology. So it's just two books. Um, they're quite easy to read, which is why I quite like them. They're quite quick novels to read. They are, n- oh, I suppose, like I classify them as young adult just because that's what they're sold as. However, they are closer to new adult because the main character is not sixteen; they're twenty-three. So, if, if they're more like, it's more like fantasy for like college age people or university age people. So they're not. It's not like the young. Ad- it's the, it's closer to that sort of edgy young adult, but is not that edgy. <laughs> it's not like, as edgy as, say, like, Maze Runner. Yeah, it's, like, not dealing with that. Well, I mean, it's dealing with that stuff, but on, like, a less... Like, I, I just... I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything particularly super triggering or terrible in this series that you get in a lot of, like, hardcore fantasy um, or, like, dystopia that you get in, like edgy young adult so it's like i would call it a new adult but it's marketed as young adult um like i said it's by Lindsay miller um the main character is sal who is a gender fluid street kid and thief they pass the trials to become one of the queen's left hand her bodyguards and assassins as a way to hunt down the people who committed many atrocities in the war in sal's childhood um which basically includes destroy like during like the atrocities those people committed included basically destroying Sal's country and people. Yeah, fair enough. 
So um, we've got a revenge. We've got some revenge. Yeah, it's about it's we've a revenge. We've got some plot. like a street kid making their way up in the world. And vibes. Co- lots of court intrigue. So after passing the trials and doing like the sort of anti-hero hero stuff in the first book, Sal then hunts all the people, those people down, and discovers the truth behind the actual destruction of her country, its royal family, and the shadows, which is bad magic stuff. We'll get into later. Made during the war in the second book. So the first book is sort of like. Passing the trials and training, and the second book is the mission to hunt down the people on her list, their list, like Arya Stark. That's why I was thinking of. So Mask of Shadows is part of a growing genre of fantasy committed to diverse representation, which is great and also needed. Um, however, beyond the work it's doing in that particular area, it's really a standard new adult fantasy. Like it, you're getting a lot of the same stuff, you know already which is why it's such a quick and easy read like you're not struggling with too too high too high a concept i mean it's the, it makes sense like you take something someone's familiar with and it's like but we add something that makes it like that it's lacking or that yeah. like makes and it like, more you, relatable to you people you don't always like need everything to be like high concept and new it's just sometimes it's just nice to have the representation that you don't usually have in like a comfort read so um, between the two books, it's also a fairly complete story. Although technically there is room for like more Sal adventures if you wanted them, the actual main story is completely closed by the end of the second book. And I left feeling completely satisfied. I was good. I'm like, this was good. It might be fun to return to, but like I'm, in and out in two books. I'm chill. Didn't stretch it for three. Bold. I, I actually quite admire that. Yeah, that is Because so you be don't mind. see it often, but also it's like, there isn't any need for three books. It, the story fit really yeah, well. People in seem two. to just like think like one story is three like, three books for one character. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like why not do two? Why not yeah. do one? And yeah, they're really concise plots, so it, it works. And there aren't any glaring examples of the book turning back on its own world building either. I will say that it is easier to stay consistent in a limited point of view, and because the point of view is like third person from Sal's perspective. Um, the knowledge and the rules of the world are only communicated to the audience through Sal or when Sal learns them. So those are limited by the character's knowledge and understanding. So like it's harder (laughs) to say something and then fuck it up later because you're only getting it through Sal. It's just like, it's not like the most uh, boundary pushing, but it is still like quite an interesting book it's something it's a start it sure is so the places in the novel are quite again like i said it's very concise um so there's three places so there's igna which is the the country i guess um was originally comprised of different countries so it was originally comprised of erland alona and nacia again with the names these places are sort of semi-united after the after the war, um, and they're ruled by Queen Mariana de, de Ignasi, which is where Igna comes from. Um, Erland is something of a dissident nation, so it still exists after the war, but they're also the so they were the main antagonists in the War of the Mages against Alona, and then they allowed Nacia, which was in the middle, to be overrun with shadows and then destroyed because of it. It I is, assume the main character is then from Nacia. Yeah. yeah. It is ruled by the bad guys um, and the ones who created the shadows in the first place but then couldn't control them. They want to rule Igna, obviously, 
and work in the shadows to bring down the queen and her court. Um, their last holdouts, not conforming to Igna, are led by Lord Del Whelan, who has styled himself king of Ireland, even though it's not really a nation anymore. They are a state within a... In, in the like, mountains. It's like when WA's like, we want to separate from We want to secede, yeah. <laughs> so they, those holdouts are in the mountains where they cannot be easily reached due to the terrain and the cold, hence why they are still there and they haven't been rooted out. Whereas Alona was a coastal nation, which obviously went to war with Erland. But, um, so Erland's mountains, Alona's coastal, and then Nacia's in the middle. And then between's the land. Yeah. So technically, Nacia was ruled by Erland, but they were allowed to keep its queen and its religion in exchange for, like, a tithe. So, like, just like a tribute payment, sort of. So they were, like, ruled, but independently operative. There is magic in this world. Um, So magic is connected to the land, but harnessed by getting runes inked into your skin with via tattoos. Cool. Love that. When the queen banishes magic, she only... So the queen banishes magic um, during the Mage War to stop the shadows, um, but she only does it for those who have previously used magic and have been ruined. So those who have magic but have never used it, which are Nacian people because their religion forbids it originally, they can still use it. However, the main use of magic that is seen and talked about is the creation of the shadows. Like, if there's any other magic, we don't... It's not really talked about. There's no uh, vivid descriptions given of what magic can do aside from the fact that it's been used to create shadows and people get runes for it. Um, The left hand is a major part of the first novel. So the left hand are the queen's personal assassins and bodyguards. They take their title and their names from the rings that she wears on her left hand. So it's opal, ruby, emerald and amethyst. According to Sal, Emerald is the only original member of the left hand remaining, handpicked at the end of the Mage War. New members are auditioned in a training camp slash, a slash assassination competition. Oh, wow. That sounds fun. Um, and are a mix of recruits who are formally invited and those who are surprises, such as Sal, who happen upon the invitation and then provide the necessary entry fee and skills. Like, like I have this invitation. Uh, might as well just come on in. Well, yeah. So if you basically... Sal steals the invitation from... A plant, because the queen sends out plants with invitations specifically to potentially get someone with the right ah, skills. So obviously, clever. Sal's a thief, and if they and they were sort of looking for a thief, so when Sal steals it, that says that sh- that Sal has the necessary skills, um, and then pre- presents the entry fee, which was first they killed someone and then they severed their hand as proof and brought it in. <laughs> and that was their entry fee. I feel like I've done that a lot in video games where it's like, you steal the thing from this person and then you go pretending to be that person or yeah. you just go using their thing. It's like yeah. very video gamey. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is sort of like that. Especially in like Assassin's Creed. That's a Assassin's Creed special. I'm playing Assassin's Creed Black Flag now, by the way. It's good. Are you proud of me? Yep. It's great. <laughs> the shadows were created by Erlen Majors, the bad guys, during the war. As an attempt to create better soldiers. Of course, that's what they all do. It's so Marvel, isn't it? To be like super soldiers. Yeah. But like magic did it, and magic. Yeah. So instead, they created monsters, which were driven by the by the need to flay the skin off people. So So they they go. They basically would like um. It's sort of like they 
torture you until your soul and mind break while somehow infusing you with magic, I guess. Why do they never accidentally create like things that are like <laughs> are compelled by the need to like hug people? Yeah. It's always and like then something bad. Because like they're basically just like angry spirits who remember having a body but no longer have one. They go around um, trying to get their body back by flaying the flesh of other people. So, Pretty macabre. Yeah, but it's so good too. <laughs> You're like, damn, that's dark, but also like interesting. Um, during the Mage War, Erlen soldiers retreated from the shadows as they made their way through Nacia in order to protect Erlen lands without warning the Nacians of the danger, leading to many of them being slaughtered by the dark magic constructs. That's rude. Yeah, pretty rude. But also, like, the Nacians, like, the soldiers are running away. What are they running from? Oh, well. Well, they weren't running. I don't think they were running away. They just um, got Left. they got their orders and said, okay, we're, like, See we're ya. going off back to Erland. And they're like, why? And then the shadows came and they're like, that's fuck. Why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Makes that's sense now. Why. Oh, no. Oh, no. My skin's been played off. So, yeah. That's what happened. So, um, as we said, our main character is Sal. So, Sal is a street kid, fighter, and thief, and begins the story with highway robbery. They are also gender fluid throughout the novel, and this is explicitly referred to quite a few times, which is I really enjoy. And Sal points out that how they dress is how they would like to be referred to as either he, she, or they. Um, so, often notes will be made about how Sal is dressing, and then either... People will use the correct pronouns or they won't and then they'll be corrected by someone or Sal will correct them. And it's, 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 it's good that like there's a lot of like attention paid to that interaction. Um, they are the child of farmers from Nacia and lived through the end of the Mages War, seeing the shadows and the horror they inflicted. They have a burning hatred for Erland, who used Nacia as a buffer between themselves and the shadows. Elise de Ferron is the daughter of the main bad guy and also Sal's tutor in writing and reading during the audition process. process. Also, she is Sal's love interest. Um, she's shown to be smart, quick thinking and compassionate. She is committed to the standardization of education for all, which I also enjoy. Everyone should have the chance to be educated. But she also doesn't, aside from that, she doesn't do that much. Like She's just like, she's smart and she has... Like she gives ideas, but like she's Sal is the action, and she's sort of the brains. Makes sense. Um, Ruby is probably actually one of my favorite characters, also known as Rudolfo de Arbro. Again, the names—they're just—they're just not good for me. Um, so he was a mage who killed the Erlen mages responsible for the shadows to prevent the knowledge of how to make them from being passed on to anyone else. His death was then faked. So he could become Ooh. Ruby without being hunted down by the Erlen Lords. Nice. Um, his mask to hide his identity is described as having no visible eyes or nose, only a single smiling slit that split his cheeks from ear to ear with dark mesh filling the gap. Sounds like a real mask of shadow. <laughs> he is Sal's sort of main mentor, I would say, during the training camp slash assassination competition. I mean, he trains them all, but he has like... He and Sal Special have quite bond. good, not really, but they have good vibes and good banter. Emerald is described in her first introduction as being a vision of steel and green silk. She is lith muscled, uh, lith and muscled with, you know, muscled arms and she's got lots of scars. Her mask has no opening for her mouth. Underneath the mask, she has three deep scars on the side of her face 
and a green glass orb with an emerald emerald inset into it to replace her right eye. She is the only person who has faced a shadow and survived. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Amethyst. How'd she do that? No one knows. don't think it's told in the book. <laughs> and if it was, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, she is also like a mage as well. So I assume she used magic. But also she's, um, they're all like skilled fighters and assassins. So Maybe Makes she sense was just a really they're good fighter. Very high up in the, the left hand. Well, they sure are. Well, they are the left hand. They are the left hand. Um, there's Amethyst, who is the newest member of the left hand, winning her mask in the auditions three years previous to Sal's. Her mask is pale purple with no eyes, the mouth in one severe line. And then Opal is the 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 finger, the the part of the hand that um Sal is auditioning for. So the original Opal's mask um, was bone white with vertical slits for eyes and a crooked smile. Sal requests their new mask to be solid white with no eyes and no mouth, a clean slate to be ev- anyone and everyone. Nice. There's Queen Mariana de, de Ignasi. So her titles are Queen of the Eastern Spires and Lady of Lightning. During the war, she sucked magic from the land and robbed the shadows of their fuel. For that, she was able to become queen, but originally she was um, a mage and like high priestess of like their mage school or something. Maud is Sal's serving maid during the auditions. They become very close and she remains Sal's servant and assistant during their time in the left hand and becomes, you know, a fairly capable spy and informant as well. Maud is often the one who's like, this is happening. Like, here's some information that you didn't have before. Also, Maud is just super cool. Bad guys. Bad guys are the lords and one lady, so that's not sexist, loyal to Erland above all else and are organizing plots to take power and take over. They are known by code names, and this is where it gets cool because they have code names. Do love code names. Um, so their code names are North Star, Deadfall, Riparian, Coach Whip, Caldera, and Winter. Sal kills them one by one across the second book, and it's pretty satisfying. <laughs> Coach Whip is the only one to die in the first book. The main bad guy is Winter, who is unsurprisingly Elisa's father. New is that, Vera is that like a Del reveal Ferron. at some point? Mm, uh, yes. Also, no. <laughs> I mean, you, you, um, Sal only knows, only finds out about the code names in the first book, but she knows by they know by the end. I always say she because I think of like where where they are in the chapter. Um, they. No, by the end of the first book, that Winter is Elisa's father. But then he retreats to his mountain fortress and take his, takes Elise with him, and they can't do anything about it. That's not good. I think. But these lords and ladies were the ones who planned and gave the order to sacrifice Nacia in order to save their own lives and lands. So, yeah. It's quite it's quite satisfying when they get killed one by one. <laughs> Also, um, like, like most of them don't really matter that much. Like, um, obviously the two who really matter are Winter. Like, Winter obviously matters a lot because he's the main bad guy. But the other one that matters a lot is actually Riparian. And because she is Elisa's sort of hero and mentor. But she's also a bad guy. And she's pretty terrible. She does lots of experiments on children. Yeah, that's an easy way to make someone not likable. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. Um, so the auditions are entered either by invitation or proof of skill, as I said before. They are vetted by Ruby in this version. Like in At the time in the book, they are vetted by Ruby. 
and then they are given a number if they are successful. So Sal is, Sal is number 23 and the last to make the cut. So there's 23 auditioners in, um, in all. The new left-hand member is selected from either the most promising of the last three auditioners or simply the last one left alive. The auditions only have three, wo- three rules. Kill the competition, do not get caught, and don't harm anyone outside the competition. Auditioners are trained in the meantime by the members of the left hand in multiple areas such as archery, poisons, court etiquette, and anything else essential to becoming a personal bodyguard assassin and member of the court. And it's pretty good. Interesting. After the war, Sir Igno was formed as a nation with the queen being appointed. Her claim to the throne was based on her history as the mage who removed magic and therefore the shadows as a threat to people. At the time, she needed Erlen's support, as well as Elonium, which was her country, to make Igna into a secure nation because they have better farmlands and after a, after a war, food is always an issue. However, she knew that the Erlen lords are bad people and are working to take over. So at the end of Mask Shadows, she tasks out with hunting down the lords who oppose her as she no longer needs them to keep Igna secure and they're preventing full integration as they cannot change their ways and are heading towards another war. So that's like double double for Sal. She gets officially sanctioned for um, their mission and then already had that mission anyway. So we, they just get the A-OK yeah. um, at the end of the first book to hunt them down. You know those, you know all those people you want to kill? Yeah. Go ahead. Go do it. We do don't it. need them anymore. <laughs> Because uh, that's one of the sticking points is Sal's like, why didn't you do anything? And um, the Queen's like, well, I couldn't do anything at the time, but I can do it now. Yeah, so let's just do it. Murder frenzy. In the court structure, all honourable nobles hold the same rank. The only ones being above them, the only ones above them being the High Court, the Left Hand and the Queen. So it, there's this sort of idea of like a more equal world, but like eh, how much that is, is, is debatable, I would say. <laughs> Um, in any sort of court structure. Classism is real. I don't have much mythology this time. Yeah, we've really blasted through everything else, but I really don't have much mythology this time. Uh, In the book, there's the lady. The lady is how Nasians refer to magic and is the focal point of their religion and prayers. Nasians didn't deal in magic because of their respect for the lady, who is magic in every form. Sal talks about the lady in the shadows as mages used her up, forced her into old, into the old handwritten language of runes and devoured her power. She devoured them right back. Runes rotted their flesh and minds, leaving nothing but mindless souls. However, the Nasians who the Erland lords kept in Erland after the war can and do use magic. So basically, Erland took Nasians who survived the war and uh, sort of took them as hostages and then did experiments on them about magic. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely thing yeah. to do. I have saved you for my own game. Yeah. Um, the stars of Nasia are the three queens of Nasia. One to protect each of Nasia's three regions. Three royal families said to be chosen by the lady herself when she walked the earth in human form. And humans were just like starting out. The first star of Nasia before the war was Namrantha or Namrata. Um, she was turned, she was sort of shadowfied as part of Erlen's experiments, but has retained humanity because her daughter Moira uh, is the one who like shadowfied her. So basically what happened was like, Moira is the last living star of Nasia, so the last queen. Nasia is not quite dead. 
Um, her mother volunteered to become a shadow to protect the rest of the Nasians being held hot- hostage. But because Ruby killed all the mages who made the shadows in the first place, Moira didn't know how to make shadows and also didn't want to. So the way that Moira makes the shadows is different from how the Erlens did it. So the shadows that she makes are like still retain like their memory and their humanity, but they're still like shadow fight. But they don't want to flay flesh. They don't want to do that. They're just sort of like creepy spirits, but like they're not evil. Like I miss my body. Well, not even that. They just sort of like, they just sort of like hang around and like, they're really good at like spy. Like it's spying and stuff, and they they can like get they can go places that obviously like lots of places without detection and things like that. So um, they're part of like the big last affront against Erland that Moira has been planning for a while. But then Sal's there, and Sal's like, I don't want to work with shadows, but I'll help you kill Winter. (laughs) The triad is the other belief system in the story. So it refers to the three divisions of magic: mind, body, and soul. But since magic is believed to be gone and is inaccessible to most, the actual power of any gestures of prayers isn't there anymore. So there's sort of an implication that when they, when magic was abundant, like the prayers or like gestures or like tokens that people used actually had power, but now they don't. I mean, the only person who really refers to the triad is Elise, and that's only in passing. I'm going to talk about bit about healing stones because obviously gemstones are a big thing in mask of shadows they seem to be yeah like a like a like a, a motif yeah and I, it's pretty cool i think it's pretty cool imagery too to have like your personal bodyguards and assassins named after the gems you wear but also like then they have like crazy faceless masks in those colors and like dress in those colors i think it's just cool it's very dramatic it is it's a whole scene <laughs> so I'm going to talk about Ruby first. So rubies are distinguished for their bright red color being the most famed and fabled red gemstone. Besides like the bright color, it is also a desirable gem due to its hardness, durability, luster, and rarity. Transparent rubies of large sizes are even rarer than diamonds. Ancient legends held that inserting a ruby into your flesh would make you invulnerable to any weapon. In European law during the Middle Ages, rubies were believed to convey good health, resolve disagreements, and remove negative thoughts. It was a long revered as a stone of royalty, and the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan was said to have offered an entire city in exchange for a huge ruby. In in Hinduism, um, ruby is known as the king of precious stones and is more valuable than any other gem. The Manimala describes the Kalpa tree, a symbolic offering to the Hindu gods, as composed entirely of precious stones made of sapphires, diamonds, topazes, emeralds, and other gems, this magnificent tree would bear rubies as fruit. One of the ceremonial offer- offerings in Hinduism um, to leave at a temple consists of gems and jewelry. Those who gift rubies, according to the Haritas, Harita Shmriti, <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, he who worships Krishna with rubies will reborn will be reborn as a powerful emperor. If with a small ruby, he will be born a king. Um, numerous early cultures believed because of the stone's likeness to the color of blood that rubies held the power of life. Among European royalty and the upper class, rubies were thought to guarantee good health, wealth, wisdom, and success in love. Other sources claimed rubies and other red stones could remedy bleeding and inflammation as well as increase the body's warmth. In an 8th century Arabic 
um, book on dreams by Achimedes discusses the significance of dreams of rubies. If a king dreams of a crown set with red jewels, red jewels such as rubies, this indicates he'll have great joy and fortune. His enemies would fear him even more. Other sources tell that dreams of rubies indicate success in business. For farmers, the, this uh, dreams of this sort mean a good harvest. Maybe I'll ask you at the end which which gem you prefer as well, according to <laughs> what you think it will give you, according to these legends. Ruby sounds pretty cool. So emerald is next. So emerald is the green variety of beryl. It, um, it is the most famous and valuable green gemstone, which is not like there's not that many green gemstones but it is uh, obviously a beautiful green color combined with its durability and rarity make it one of the most expensive gemstones deep green is apparently the most desired color in emeralds um, in general the paler co- the paler the color of an emerald the lesser its value according to legend an emerald was one of the stones given by god to king solomon a gift that endowed the king with power over all creation the Incas used them in both their jewelry and religious ceremonies, but the Spanish, who generally treasured gold and silver far more than any gems, traded the stones for precious metals. In doing so, they made European and Asian royalty privy to the stones' majestic qualities. People believed emeralds could confer riches, power, and eloquence if worn as talismans. Uh, supposedly, these gems also strengthened memory and sharpened wits. Its most valuable power is perhaps bestowing the ability to predict future events. In past eras, physicians used emeralds against poison, infection, and dysentery. Many people believed the gemstone would also protect against possession by demons. Maybe shame with that you should get one. <laughs> uh, some even believed that placing an emerald under the tongue could help one see the future, reveal truths, and be protected from evil spirits. Wearing an emerald was believed to grant the person the ability to reveal the truth, reveal the truth or false falseness of a lover's oath. Amethyst. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like I can't. That's the only time you can reveal the truth. <laughs> well, no, because it says you can also predict the future. That's true. So I, you know, yeah, it depends. <laughs> it's like choosing a superpower. Which one do you want? Do you want invulnerability or do you want to have foresight or whatever amethyst will give you? Amethyst is one of the most popular gemstones. I got all this from gemsociety.org. Um, <laughs> it's saying a lot of like, this is the most popular gemstone. And it's like, I guess they're all they're just all the popular. most, they're all popular. The ones that everyone know, they're the most popular. <laughs> yeah. Then the ones that people don't know, they're the <laughs> unpopular they, ones. Yeah. That seems how it's gone. And has been considered valuable since ancient times. Its name derives from the Greek amethestos, which means not drunken, as amethyst in antiquity was thought to ward off drunkenness. Amethyst was once highly regarded among the precious gemstones like ruby and emerald, but discoveries of huge amethyst deposits since the 1800s have made amethyst fairly inexpensive and very obtainable. One of the most well-known of uh, amethyst's protections um, obviously involves its power to prevent drunkenness. So there's a myth about Bacchus, or Dionysus, the Roman or Greek god of wine, slash theatre and religious madness and things like that, has promoted this belief. The story goes that long ago there was a beautiful maiden on her way to worship at the temple of Diana or Artemis. However, she had the misfortune of crossing paths with the god of wine. Angered since he just suffered some slight, he vowed to take revenge on the next person he met because the gods do that yeah, shit. Yeah, the gods are kind of shit. Um, he spied the maid and unleashed his two guardian tigers upon her. Didn't know he had guardian tigers. Um, 
just rolls around with an well, entourage of tigers. No, we're going to find out that he doesn't. And that, that's not really part of any real myth in a minute. But as the great beast bounded towards the hapless lass, the goddess Diana intervened to spare her such a terrible fate. She turned her into a pure, clear stone. She wasn't like, I'll stop those tigers. She was just like, fuck it, you can be a stone Imagine now, being like, I'm going to save her from these tigers by turning her into a stone. <laughs> I'd be like, thanks, but also, what the fuck? No thanks. Thanks for no thanks. <laughs> There was a better way of doing this. (laughs) I would still like to be a person, (laughs) not a stone. Um, Immediately, remorse seized Bacchus or Dionysus. Um, To atone for his actions, he poured his wine over the stone, staining the crystal a deep violet hue, and so the maiden Amethyst lent her name to the crystal. However, although um, presented in a classical guise, this myth only comes from dates back to the Renaissance. The French poet Remy Ballou created the story in 1576 as part of a poem on gemstone beliefs. He just made that shit up. He made it up. <laughs> I mean, it sounds real because the gods are shit. I mean, he clearly had a good understanding of what gods were like. Except the tigers part. <laughs> that was a choice. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they have tigers in Greece. I mean, I could be wrong. I've never been to Greece. But I'm pretty sure tigers are not part I'm of the sure topography. Ti- I think they have like lions, maybe. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they have any big cats. Maybe not. All of my I know they have lots of rams yeah. and bulls. They happen in myths a lot. That's true. They do have but, those. Um, lions and tigers I've not heard of. Lions and tigers and bears. bears. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> um, many cultures find spiritual overtones in amethyst. Often viewed as a stone of peace, some believe amethyst's calming presence produces soothing dreams by bringing the dreamer more in tune with the divine. This clarity and peacefulness also extends to the waking mind. Amethyst is said to help the mind flow flow freely in both mental and metaphysical dimensions. Now we get to the last one, Opal, and then we're going to find out what superpower you want, according to which gemstone you should be wearing. <laughs> I think I'm pretty, unless Opal's uh, blows me out of the water, I'm pretty set. <laughs> um, Opal is the most colourful of gems. No shit. <laughs> it's splendid um, play of colours, unsurpassed, and fine examples can be even more valuable than a diamond. Play of colour consists of iridescent colour flashes that change with the angle at which the stone is viewed. This phenomenon is often called opalescence. The play of colour may consist of large individual flashes of colour known as shillers or maybe tiny dense flashes. The intensity and distribution of the colour flashes is is the determining factor in the value of an opal. So opals on the amazing race. When they went to Cooper Yeah, Pedy. they did. They were in the so, opal mines at Cooper Pedy. Oh yeah, Australia has quite quite a big opal One day mine. I'll go to Cooper Pedy. And will you? You want to go to the underground town? Yeah, I'll do a bit. Yeah, same. I don't want to get uh, I think caught it's up cool. in all the crime that Cooper Pedy has, but I'll oh, have yeah. to go to all the yeah, other stuff. I just, I think it's cool that they have a subterranean town. Yeah, it's sick. That's just cool. That's very fantasy. Anyway, opals are made when bits of silica gel get deposited into the crevices of rocks. They've long been regarded as one of the luckiest and most magical of all, de- all gems. You're going to see that gem society immediately turns back on this in a second <laughs> because of their ability to show many colors. According to some legends, opals fell from the heavens in flashes of lightning, which is cool. And you would also believe from looking at an opal. In Greek mythology, and I, I didn't check the veracity of this one, but I assume since they didn't say, actually, some dude in the Renaissance just made this shit up, that this one is actually real, but I haven't heard of this one. Um, in Greek mythology, Gyges found an opal ring that made him invisible. He then killed the king of Lydia and married the queen. Despite the implications of this myth, opals are affiliated with hope, purity, and truth. 
Oh, wait, maybe I got that from a slightly different website because now I've written, according to gemsociety.org, <laughs> all but black opals have acquired a reputation for being unlucky. <laughs> Sorry. Which People one can't it? agree. Sounds like it's very Sounds divisive. Like, yeah, there's a heated, a heated debate in the opal society. Although the beauty and uniqueness of opals have helped their owners disregard the superstitions, they do persist. In the curious lore of precious stones, the mineralogi- mineralogist, mineralogist, George Coons identified what he believed changed the popular perception of the opal. In a chapter of Sir Walter Scott's 1829 gothic novel, Anne of Gierstein, we learn the unusual story of the enchanted and mysterious Lady Hermione. The grandmother of the titular character, she appeared to possess magical powers. At times she seemed more an indefatigable spirit or a will-o'-the-wisp than human. She always wore her hair in a golden clasp with an opal that, amid the changing lights peculiar to that gem, displayed internally a slight tinge of red like a spark of a fire. This gem seemed to reflect her mood, showing a twinkling and flashing gleam, which seemed to be emitted by the gem itself whenever she became animated or agitated, as if it sympathized with the wearer's emotions. On the day of her daughter's christening, drops of holy water struck her opal, which shot out a brilliant spark like a falling star, and became the instant afterwards lightless and colourless as a common pebble. Hermione then collapsed two hours later. All that remained of her was a handful of grey ashes. Wow. So what happened was it was a very popular but obviously fictional tale of misfortune befaring the wearer of an opal, and combined with the fact that many gem cutters refuse to work on the fragile gem and you get opals of bad luck apparently. Uh, wearing an opal as ju- as a jewelry stone is rel- is a relatively modern practice. However, in ancient times, people wore this stone for, a, for like a variety of reasons. Many considered opal to be beneficial to the eye and wore it to cure eye, cure eye diseases. Some even believed it could render the carrier invisible. Supposedly, carrying an opal wrapped in a fresh bay leaf would keep others from seeing you. This superstition earned the earned opal the popular designation of Patronus Furum. Latin for patron of thieves, which makes sense why actually Sal becomes then Opal. I didn't think of that when I was writing this down. That makes sense. Um, perhaps extending on the invisibility theme, some believe Opal's aid in astral projection, a state of definite invisibility. Supposedly the inner fire or play of color of Opal's attract forces that bring money. Then again, the cost of fine Opal's alone points to the, nece- the necessary presence of having money to buy one. Some believe the darkness and depth of the black opal can hold and release power for magicians in their arcane workings. Of course, whether they use this power for good or bad is up to their discretion and has no bearing on the stone itself. And that's, that's it. We, 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 all we have left is philosophy and worldview. So I'm going to ask you now before we get to that. Morgan, what superpower do you want according to which stone you should wear? Um, I, was, I, was pretty, I was taken by ruby. You want to I'll be insert a ruby under my skin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You want to be invulnerable too. Are you ex- expecting to be attacked by any weapons? <laughs> I don't know. If, I feel like if I was invulnerable, I'd probably put myself in situations <laughs> where I was. You're just expecting to like drop a heavy thing on your foot at work. I mean, you're just like you're out on it. You're having a fun time. Like, watch this. And then you just jump in front of a car. and then. Like, I wonder if I had sick. a ruby inserted under my skin last night. Would my entire body not hurt from dancing so hard? <laughs> Is, Is that how that would, works? Does a ruby protect you from dancing? <laughs> That is the question. <laughs> I mean, I would probably go with emerald because it sharpens wits. I like that. It was emerald that did that, yes? Let me have a look. Yeah, emerald yeah. sharpened wits. wits. Yeah, I want that one. 
I want to have the sharpest wits around. I want to be able to cut you with my words and also with my knife. All right. Uh, and now that we've come to the end as well, before we do philosophy, who do you want to be? Um, I also wrote Ruby for that. <laughs> uh, but I was at a backup being, I, I don't know, kind of like an Alfred kind of character. Seems kind of cool and like mischievous. Like Maud. Yeah. That seems kind of cool as well. Yeah. Maud's pretty chill. I, uh, Ruby's one of my favorite characters. I wrote Ruby or Sal initially, but then I was like, Ruby also has a hard life. And Sal also has a hard life. And I was like, I don't really want to have a hard life. There is um one character who is also uh genderqueer. He's there in the second book. I think he I think they use like he, him, they, them pronouns. And I only remember his title is honorable because that's also Sal's title, which is like a really cool gender neutral court title. As opposed to Lord or Lady, Honorable is really cool. Yeah. But I can't remember their name. But as far as I know, he's that he they are not evil. They're the, they're not working for the bad guys, and they seem to have a good life at court. So maybe them, but I can't remember their name. <laughs> or if potentially they're not even from this book series, but I I think they are. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read the second. Done book. your research. It's not. I did try and find them when I was skimming through the second book. But unlike the first book, which I have on my Kindle, so I can skim through re- really quickly, I have the second book um, hardcover, and it's much harder to skim through it because I can't like search a word and then just click on it and go to that page. So I I did a small amount for the second book <laughs> because I would have had to reread it, and I did not have time to do Fair. that. Time is uh, fleeting. Yeah. I don't have a lot of it at the moment. So we're down to philosophy and worldview. I would say that one major philosophy is that it has the same sort of morality as Assassin's Creed. It's just like, you know, sometimes killing bad people is okay. <laughs> That's like The greater good. I mean, yeah, because Sal's just like, no, they're bad people, so I'm going to kill them. Education that is free and accessible is important. It is a small theme of the book, but it is there, and I agree. And it's great that it's in the book, and it's called attention to. Strangely, for a book that is like killing bad people is good. It is also like the it also sort of champions the end does not justify the means, but to a degree. So like the it's always like hmm. Sal does kill the bad guys but there's like there's like rules in place for like it like it's not like although like anyone who does bad things usually gets like their just desserts like it's, it's not like like Erland people like all those guys they decided that in order to win the war they would make the shadows and like blah 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 but like, yeah, it's just like I had a thought, but I obviously didn't write down enough for me to remember all of it. But the end does not justify the means to a degree. <laughs> like everyone gets their just desserts, but like it's not like terrible. It's like there's there's sort of a morale, like a, a, a an honor to the art of assassination. So like uh, one of actually, yeah, one of like the contestants in the audition process flays one of the other contestants alive as his way of assassinating them to replicate a shadow. Fair enough. And that sort of fucks him over in the end because 
there's like lie the book sets up lines that you don't cross. Yep. So and finally, gender non-conforming highway robbers slash assassins are slash, slash assassins are a vibe and everyone knows it and we need more of it. More gender non-conforming anti-hero people doing miscellaneous crime that doesn't hurt too many people. I don't have many recommendations for this week, so Morgan, if you can think of anything to add in that, would um, be great. I just it made me think, and we should maybe one day this on the podcast. But I was thinking a lot about Del Toro Quest during this oh, episode. Oh man, I haven't read Del, <laughs> Del Toro Quest in a long time. But yeah, I loved those books so much as a child. I loved them so much. And then there was that shitty anime that I watched like one episode of. But yeah, that's a fun one to read. Yeah. So I think it's probably probably a bit young for us now, but it I still is reread that. Very probably. young. It is a very young book series, but it is good. And I'm pretty sure Michael has them all. <laughs> I saw them on a shelf in his house, so I can just borrow them. I don't even have to buy them. So my recommendations are, so I'm not personally a big fan of Sarah J. Mars. Do you know Sarah J. Mars, Morgan? No. No, okay. Mainly because her series, like the series that I read the first book of and enjoyed more than her court series, is a very long series. And I've signed my life away to Brando Sando for the rest of time. Um, but Mask of Shadows does have a similar vibe to Sarah, De- Sarah J. Mars. So if you're a fan of Sarah J. Mars, Mask of Shadows might suit you. If you like Mask of Shadows, you can check out Sarah J. Mars. Although I don't believe that her series is as um, diverse. As far as I know, to be fair, I haven't read it all. But I, like, it hasn't come up on any of my like, here's some diverse fantasy books to read. I haven't seen any of her stuff on there. So if you're looking for that. You're not going to necessarily find it. But it is similar in style and vibe and tone. Also has assassins in it, you know. Um, And also the Gentleman Bastard series also has some crossover with Mask of Shadows in that it involves fun crime but with more shenanigans. So those are my two recommendations. I couldn't think of any, like, films or TV shows that are similar, really. So just those two book series are something to check out if you're looking for something to read i personally really recommend the gentleman bastard series as i said i'm not a huge fan of sarah j mars i don't have the time to commit to reading her whole huge book series but i appreciate that she has written it but the gentleman bastards i started before i signed my life away to brando sander so i do make time for them (laughs) brando sander brando sander and uh it's a very good book series um uh, it's also, the first one is The Lies of Locke Lamora. And it's, it's oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a really good book series. It's by Scott Lynch. He's really good. I've definitely good. heard of that, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I've talked to you about it. Another series I will get you to read because it's so good. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Morgan, do you have a sign off for us? <sighs> Not really. Uh, sign to the gems. Uh, ge- Gem. Stay, sh- stay shiny. Stay shiny, kids. Stay shiny, kids. all right that'll do see ya thanks for listening this has been a spiky trap radio production for more spiky trap radio content please head to spikytrap.com